Welcome to IB Talk, the leading podcast for the insurance industry across Canada, brought to you by Insurance Business. This episode is presented in partnership with CNA Insurance. In the latest episode of IBC Talk, Ruth Stewart and Michael Brennan from CNA Insurance join us to discuss the current state of the life science market and the future of clinical trials. Hi everyone and welcome to IBC Talk, the Insurance Business Canada podcast. I'm Bethan Moorcraft, Senior Editor at Insurance Business and in this episode we're going to be taking a deep dive into Canada's life sciences sector before, during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. I've got two experts from CNA Canada alongside me who will shed some light on this fascinating topic today. I'm delighted to welcome Michael Brennan, Senior Underwriter for Healthcare and Life Sciences and Ruth Stewart, Senior Risk Control Consultant for Healthcare, both at CNA Canada. Michael, Ruth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Um, So big question to start off with. Ruth, how would you describe the state of the life sciences sector in Canada? Life sciences sector is very well established. It's a mature industry and it's supported by a very robust regulatory framework with oversight by the federal government and specifically Health Canada. The government regulates the safety and efficacy of medical devices and drugs throughout their life cycle. And that means from clinical trials right to post-marketing, which is when the drug or medical devices on the market And specifically at that point, they're looking for any adverse events, effects of the drug or the medical device. Michael, I think you have some more to say on that. Yes, thanks. To add to Ruth's comments further here, Canada has and is experiencing fairly significant growth in the life sciences sector. In Ontario alone, the sector employs 66,000 people. Ontario overall has approximately 1,900 life science firms and it's top 10 in the world for pharmaceutical companies by revenues. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic itself, we've seen a fairly large increase in research and development dollars by both private companies and governments, which has only served to fuel the acceleration and growth of our domestic life sciences sector further. If you combine the increase in funding with new innovative technologies that have been discovered and are further being developed, it's expected by that that this growth will further continue into the foreseeable future. Of course, to see strong growth in this sector, Canada also requires the appropriate talent. The country requires scientists with specialist skills and needs to fill gaps in clinical research, operations, and medical and regulatory affairs. Overall, Canada has leading world health institutions and has a strong R&D sector that is only further being fueled by both government and private investment. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Michael. Um, you mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I want to stick with that for my next question. Michael, how did you see the sector? How was it impacted by the pandemic? And how do you think it is set for post-pandemic in Canada? Prior to the pandemic, you had a lot less public interest in the industry. With the advent of the pandemic, you saw public interest in the, in the industry grow dramatically. To put this into context, for the most part, 
you have a population that has never experienced outbreaks of diseases such as polio. We have certainly never experienced a pandemic that has altered our lives so dramatically. Myself, like many, probably thought the current pandemic was highly unlikely. Our highly developed world has made most of us think we were mostly unable to be affected by an event such as the one we're currently living through. Essentially, despite all of our knowledge and resources, we were caught unprepared in many ways. The advent of the pandemic really helped to drive home the importance of the life sciences sector in keeping society healthy and hopefully eventually steering us out of this pandemic. It has also brought renewed attention to Canada's lack of domestic manufacturing capabilities and put a new emphasis on building these. It's clear that government policy has helped to control the pandemic, but without the life sciences industry, we would not have the vaccines that are helping control the current pandemic. I think moving forward, you will have a lot more public and government interest in fueling growth and R&D in the industry itself. You will see a larger focus on building domestic biomanufacturing capacity and manufacturing other critical medical supplies, as well as a strengthening of our domestic supply chains. Mm, That's interesting. Uh, I think the pandemic highlighted uh, the importance of clinical research and trials and R&D, as you've been mentioning, Michael. you know, Ruth, what are some common challenges that companies face when conducting clinical trials? Probably the biggest challenge has been recruiting and retaining participants in a clinical trial. And those participants could be either a healthy volunteer, um, a patient with a disease that is being affected probably by a drug, or a combination thereof. Uh, specifically in the pandemic, many trials were delayed because it was impossible to recruit anybody because of all of the limitations in getting together, uh, border closures, etc. One of the other thing that has always been a problem is really the retention because clinical trials can run for a very long time and patients, volunteers will drop out. They cannot be bothered to travel to a testing site. Um, they lose interest or it's just too much of a hassle for them to continue uh, their participation in in the trial. And this can really um, cause problems with the trial. It might mean that the target for having enough participants is not met, and therefore a clinical trial could be very delayed, or maybe even it will be stopped because they just can't find participants. The Another major issue is really the complexity of the trials with the regulation being different across jurisdictions having the right skilled workforce who is participating in the administration of the trial and taking time away from particularly the clinical people, the physicians, it could be the nurses, um, to be a participant in running, say, a clinical trial site. That's lost revenue for them. And therefore, just the recruiting of people to be involved in looking after the trials is is becoming more of a challenge. Compliance with the regulations throughout the life of a trial is also a difficulty because rules are changed across geographies. 
And therefore, if you're running clinical trials, as is often the case in many different geographies, everybody in that geography has to be aware of what are the rules here that I must be attuned and well informed of so that they can be enforced uh, throughout the course of a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask about vaccines, um, obviously a a very big topic throughout the pandemic. Uh, The COVID-19 vaccines were fast-tracked throughout the system worldwide. What were the risks associated with that? Uh, Ruth, I'll come to you first. Sure. Typically, when you look at the production of any drug, it takes years, years. So in this case, it wasn't even a year, and all of a sudden, you went from clinical trial, it seemed, to the vaccine availability in in just months. Um, There were many reasons for that, but this has caused some distrust of the vaccine. Uh, It's not only by healthcare professionals, but by the public. Some of our healthcare experts feel that there's not enough information about the true uh, side effects or uh, downstream implications of the vaccine on individuals. And certainly it has that population in, in many, many countries who, when they listen to all sorts of various people speaking about the vaccine, depending on whether be it pro or anti, and these are not just people who are against vaccines in the public, Um, a lot of the public is skeptical that the vaccines were well tested enough and they could have trust in the safety. It became very clear that because the shortened testing time and the numbers that were recruited for the clinical trials, that not enough information was actually gathered on some of the impacts of the vaccines. And these became uh, available later on as more diverse populations were being vaccinated. Some side effects were suddenly occurring. um, And now there's monitoring of individuals who might be more susceptible uh, to those side effects. The other thing that was a concern is that the vaccine would not be particularly effective. And in fact, the vaccines that are currently on the market against COVID, they do not provide immunity. What they do do is reduce disease Uh, severity. And we're still dealing with how many boosters do people need to have the maximum protection against getting severe COVID disease? Yeah, to continue with Ruth's comments, I think we have a few things to consider here. To start, governments and scientists have been preparing for a pandemic for years. COVID-19 itself was not an entirely new virus and is similar to other viruses such as the SARS virus. The mRNA technology had already been developed and was already being tested for other viruses. mRNA technology can be adapted and scaled up very quickly, unlike other older vaccine technologies. You had massive collaboration between scientists, governments, and global agencies. 
For example, once the virus was identified and mapped, the genetic material was made public. There has been massive government funding. In this case, companies no longer had to find ways to fund the expensive research as many were able to tap into the massive amount of government funding made available to them. When it comes to clinical trials, we have to remember it's a numbers game. To complete a trial, for example, we need to have enough people that fit the profile for the drug being tested. For example, a drug that treats a rare end-stage cancer is going to take longer to bring to market due to the lower numbers of people to test it on. In the case of COVID-19, with the virus running rampant, this meant that there was a massive amount of people to take part in the clinical trials. This availability of test subjects really helped to expedite the process. And finally, government red tape. In this case, government reviews started early. Traditionally, a government review of research data would only start after all the testing had been completed. Rolling review to help, in this case, allowing a rolling review really helped to save a lot of time in bringing the product to market. Excellent. Thank you both for that. Um, I think it's clear that the clinical trials process has changed due to COVID-19 and other socioeconomic factors. Michael, what does the future look like for clinical trials in Canada? And do you think the insurance industry is ready? That's a great question. The clinical trials business is a robust and growing industry. Canada captures 4% of the world's clinical trials, ranking fourth in number for clinical trial sites and is the G7 leader in clinical trial productivity. Canada is globally recognized for the quality and expertise of its research clinicians, many of whom are globally recognized for major medical discoveries and innovations. Canada is also recognized for its ability to conduct clinical research in complex therapeutic areas with diverse population basis. Essentially, our multicultural population, research facilities, our highly educated population and our public health care system make Canada an ideal country for research and development. With COVID-19, we saw significant demand for clinical trials and certain insurance coverage within Canada and throughout the world. Although Canada boasts a very strong R&D sector, I think that the future of clinical trials is a more global one. More R&D companies are going to move to clinical trials faster. They're going to require more flexibility and speed when placing policies in foreign countries and require a highly special, specialized underwriting companies, such as CNA, of knowledge and expertise with the global placement of these clinical trials. Excellent. Well, that all sounds rather exciting. But, you know, as we all know, unfortunately, adverse incidents can occur. Um, Ruth, what are the most common claims that impact the life sciences sector? Yeah, this is an area that there's a lot of work being done on to see where does a product typically fail. And there's three primary areas. It could be in the design of a product. So, for example, a hospital bed with the rails that were wrongly positioned in the design process. It could be a manufacturing defect. So, for example, in the design of a probe for brain surgery, the metal tip on the probe found to interact with um, x-ray machines. And the final one is the failure to warn. So it's knowing that there is a particular hazard related to a device such as, for example, you can pinch your fingers when you open up some product and there is no warning on the manual relative to that or there's no decal 
on the piece of equipment telling you to guard your fingers. In the worst cases, you might have severe consumer injury or even death. And certainly that's the one that really flags and draws people attention to an issue with a specific product. Probably in the life sciences industry, the most flagrant example we have is related to the production of OxyContin by Purdue Pharma. And I think most people around the world are familiar with the drug OxyContin, which is a narcotic. It was advertised and really marketed heavily to physicians as a non-addictive pain medication, really as an alternative to drugs like morphine, which we know are highly addictive. However, OxyContin was also found to be highly addictive. And now we are seeing many, many people, probably in North America and the U.S., there are huge numbers of the population that are addicted to OxyContin and other like drugs. It has led to many drug overdoses and death. And we are still seeing litigation across primarily North America related to the anybody who was involved in the production, the distribution of opioids causing these significant consumer impacts. Now, Ruth, tapping into your expertise as a senior risk control consultant, how can risk control help to reduce the risk of claims in the life sciences sector? And what are some best practices that all life sciences companies should be following? We are really lucky working at CNA. We have access to claims information from our colleagues in the U.S., or in Europe. So we are able to provide information to our insured about what are the common issues we are seeing uh, litigated in the industry. We also have access to information about the emerging hazards. So are there drugs or other elements that go into a, say, pharmaceutical or device that can lead to a uh, claim later on um, as more information becomes available. Part of what we do is help our clients make sure that they are following the requirements of Health Canada. And even if they are sending product into the state, we do look at what is available to them as information regarding the requirements under um, the FDA in the U.S. So we look at what is the product? Is it a medical device? Is it a pharmaceutical, cosmetic, etc.? Are they ensuring that the product is compliant? We can check that through Health Canada. We also look at the product standards that pertain to their industry. And this became something that was very valuable during COVID when we were suffering a shortage of personal protective equipment and everybody decided to get into that business. And we would ask questions about if you're designing a mask, 
to what standard. And we wanted specific information from the manufacturer that here's the product report that says it's been tested and we know it's met the standard for providing this product, this specific mess, to the healthcare sector. And the other thing is we've advised clients on industry standards. So, for example, um, there was a insured who had not pursued uh, their registration of a product through Health Canada. So they were given advice about how to pursue that, what they needed to do, and should they want to develop a product for release in Canada, this is how they would have to go about it. So the, the clients, when they're not quite sure of the route to take, have reached out to us for that type of information. Yes, thanks, Ruth. Um, of course, beyond risk control sits insurance. Um, Michael, you've already touched on this slightly, but please can you summarize CNA Canada's life sciences insurance offering? Absolutely. CNA's focus for life sciences is on products liability and errors and omissions. We write these policies on a claims-made basis, offer up to $10 million in limits, and our Canadian policies can cover international exposures. Our appetite is focused on contract research and manufacturing organizations, clinical trials, biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and nutraceuticals as well. CNA has its own risk control services, so Ruth here, that are dedicated to our life sciences and healthcare teams. We have a dedicated life science claims team. We have a highly specialized team of three life science underwriters who are solely focused on underwriting our life science and healthcare lines. And we believe this is important as our knowledge and familiarity with regulations is often an asset to both our brokers and the insureds. And finally, as a global company, we have the necessary expertise and on a daily basis work with both our colleagues and the United States and the United Kingdom, allowing us to have true global capabilities. That's great. Thank you, Michael. Um, I want to set back to the risk control because clearly it's such an important part of this um, and it is value-add with CNA's life sciences insurance solutions, as you just explained. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your offerings and why you feel this differentiates CNA in the marketplace? Sure, thanks. Um, I've done a number of assessments of risk for some of our product producing companies, actually in combination with my colleagues who do the property risk. So part of what we would ask a client is, where do you get your goods from? Are they domestic? Or are they imported? And if they're imported, um, are they testing those products, those ingredients, to ensure there's no contamination with chemicals or microbiological um, matter that might create an issue in the uh, quality of the product? So a good example is good old baby powder and you know, it's been around for many, many, many years as sort of tried and true. And it's only in the past little while that suddenly the issue of talc has come up. And it's not the only product that has talc in it, but exposure to talc has been related to cancers, particular in, in women. So that's one of the areas we would look at. 
For example, we also ask about what are your contract arrangements with suppliers and vendors? Are you transferring your risk? And where they don't have that those type of agreements in place, we will strongly suggest that they look at that as a way of having somebody else be responsible for the risk of a product. We look at the manuals for a product. We will look at the stickers on particularly um, products that would be, say, I'll use a brace, that might not be the best example, but, you know, is, is there an item that has specific hazards? Probably an operating table would be better. It goes up and down. Are there warning labels right on the piece of equipment that say, you know, risk of finger pinching, etc. So we look at that and we can give advice to our clients about where they can get better information regarding the use of warning labels. Instructions, we always like to make sure that they are rated for reading by the everyday consumer and not so layered with scientific or medical information that they become incomprehensible. I also look at the marketing on the company's website to see how is this product being promoted to the public? So I recently worked with a colleague who was looking at a company who is sort of a, a not mainstream part of their business, but came up with COVID. They got into the business of providing and manufacturing personal protective equipment. And I noticed that their gowns and masks were described as COVID-19 PPE, which means personal protective equipment. None of the items that they have available for the public or for other companies actually has been rated by Health Canada as being something that can be used uh, for effectiveness against COVID or for protection against catching COVID. So that client was strongly recommended to remove the COVID-19. And we've seen that with other companies. So it's just a, a common issue that came up again with other companies that were announcing or promoting products as something which they did not have any data to support. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ruth. Some really fascinating um, examples there. Michael, anything to add on what differentiates CNA in the marketplace? Yes. To add to Ruth's comments, simply put, we have a global presence. If you are a R&D company that wants to grow into the global market, CNA can write almost everything from your R&D policy, your clinical trials, to the manufacturing and distribution of your products around the world. With the added value of risk control, we just don't offer insurance, but a value add to both brokers and the clients. CNA Life Science staff have a deep understanding of the life sciences industry, the rules and regulations that surround it, which serve to benefit both the brokers and the clients, especially when working to place large, complex global risk. Great. Thanks, Michael. You mentioned brokers. Now, in this rapidly evolving world of life sciences, as you've both just uh, explained, what tips or advice do you have for your broker partners in this space? Um, and how can they become kind of the best possible resource to clients and CNAs underwriters in this very complex marketplace? 
Yeah, as, as noted above, in today's complex underwriting world, it's not simply simply the broker sending us the risk and having us quote, but it's often a team approach between the underwriter, the broker, and the client in coming up with a solution that works for every involved party. So working with underwriters to further understand the complexity of the risk, including Health Canada, FDA, and global regulations, can really be of assistance to brokers when, when looking to place these new risks. As underwriters in today's life science space, we often find ourselves on the phones with the brokers and company leadership. From a perspective of all these countries, for example, may have different rules and regulations for their trials. And that's where we can come in as a company and take a team approach to really make this solution work for everybody. In CNA's case, our life science underwriters will harness their knowledge as well as work with our Lloyd's operation out of London to place these trials. After all, for us, helping the client mitigate potential losses is in everyone's best interest. At the end of the day, underwriters and brokers taking a team approach to understanding and placing these risks can be beneficial for all of us. Yeah, agreed. Team approach and collaboration obviously is extremely important uh, important in this space. Um, thank you, Michael. Lots to think about there. Um, I think that's a great place to end this discussion today. Michael, Ruth, thank you so much for sharing your insights on IB Talk. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. That's great. Thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. I'm Beth Moorcraft, Senior Editor at Insurance Business. Make sure you check out the rest of our podcasts, IBTV episodes and daily news at www.insurancebusinessmag.com forward slash CA. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of IBC Talk. For more from Ruth, Michael and the team at CNA Insurance, visit them at cnacanada.ca. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts.